Welcome, Wi-Fi Pioneers, to episode 11 of the Wi-Fi Pioneer podcast. We're your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? All right, so we're going to start actually off-topic of the normal Wi-Fi business and small business stuff, because uh, Remy actually has a good story about just dealing with uh, his his kid and the current medical situation and trusting doctors. So it's important enough, uh, with enough of us starting uh, young families or about to start families, I think this is still pretty relevant for those who are sovereignty-minded and independent-minded individuals. So, Remy, why don't you tell us what happened? Yeah, so I'll just start with the, uh, the kind of basic overview and conclusion first. In this day and age, you have to be able to, if you're sovereign-minded, if you're independent, if you think for yourself, if you're not following along with just the mainstream NPC thinking, you have to develop an entire parallel structure of of service providers in all in all segments of your life. And obviously, food supply, we talk about that a lot, but also in how you, uh, in, in whatever your healthcare needs are, uh, and not just your main doctor, but uh, in all the specialists too, because... Each of those specialists is probably trained in Western medicine and hasn't had a, a quality critical thought in, in many, many years or hasn't considered anything outside the mainstream in many, many years. And the mainstream is just, you know, the doctrine that they've been uh, brainwashed with from med school and on. Right. Um, so what happened with me is uh, we took our kid to, uh, to the doctor, to a specialist. And uh, I can't tell you how many times during this conversation uh, the doctor said something like, you know, that's just not evidence-based medicine. Uh, and then he even said something so strange as that's not evidence-based medicine. That's personalized medicine. And I was just, I was just struck by that. Uh, okay. You're saying that, that those things are in direct conflict, that if I'm considering the specific, uh, the specific impact of, of whatever on my body as unique to, to somebody else's body, that that's no longer considered evidence-based medicine or mainstream medicine just blew my mind. Um, the other thing that, that happened during that entire uh, interaction was we had to be really careful about steering the conversation where we wanted it to be because we didn't want to end up in a situation where the doctor asked, okay, so what vaccines has your kid had? Uh, well, he hasn't had any, but we can't say that because you don't know what the doctor's going to do. At that point, it's out of your hands. And he may even, regardless of what he thinks, he may feel compelled that he has to do something or else he'll be in trouble. So you just open this whole can of worms that really, really puts you in a bind. So as I've talked with a few of my friends about this, it just became really obvious. You have to have an entire network of critical service providers, such as doctors and specialists, uh, that are not going to be just uh, bow to the woke, the woke mafia and, and government uh, propaganda. Um, he said a few other things that were interesting as well. Uh, we, we mentioned that we were um, giving our kid curcumin to help with inflammation. And he's like, what's that? I was, I was just blown away. Like, who hasn't heard of curcumin? Um, it wasn't just a matter of him refusing to consider alternative solutions or alternative explanations, because uh, his brain is just so wired to, if there's not a study for it, I'm not going to consider it. It was also just the lack of critical thinking skills. Um, and uh, basically, the long and short of it is, we have to go to the specialist to rule out one or two important things but we can't count on him to provide any real clarity or, um, or value beyond that because that's, that's literally the end of it. They're basically just robots. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of the big overview. And God, this is just so telling of the, the pattern we're in of, uh, it's kind of the competency crisis, but it's a bigger issue. So we've we've talked about in past episodes, like you used to export certain knowledge to other people. You would uh, export your, your your financial knowledge to a financial advisor, and they would actually give you workable advice. Well, we've seen in the last 20 years that you could do better picking stocks at random than going to a financial advisor. Uh, likewise, most of your CPAs, most of your, your uh, tax accountants and whatnot, they're glorified TurboTax users. So... You know, what are they exactly? I I have to know my ta my own tax knowledge and own tax law better than my CPA just to get the right deductions and um, expenses written off. And that's not how it's supposed to be. I should be paying you to do your job. And the medical industry is just as bad. And it's it's really frightening because if you've um, the more research you do on medical and food specifically, you'll see that uh, from medical school all the way to when they start their own practice, completely. It's a very frightening uh, endeavor because, like, take nutrition. Your doctor goes to, what, six or eight years of med school, and they have a total of 40 hours of nutrition. 
well, these are the same people that brought us the food pyramid that to this day, people still don't know that the food pyramid is what's making you fat. You know, the, the FDA approved um, food pyramid where you eat tons of carbs and very little protein is why we are so fat. Well, one of the reasons. And this just goes into the medical establishment. Like you mentioned, some of the doctors are just afraid. They don't want to get sued. They don't want to get in trouble. So they're just going to walk the line. So they're cowards, but they're not stupid. The rest of them are stupid and they just take the propaganda. It's like, why are you giving a two month old vaccinations? That wasn't a thing when I was a kid, you know, when um, I'm in my forties and I think I got my first round of vaccines when I was like, I don't know, two years old or something. I'd have to ask my parents now, but it, um, the vaccine schedule is insane and it's, it's creating doubt because there are legit vaccines, right? We, we eradicated polio and smallpox and other shit because of vaccines, not all of them childhood, but some of them are needed, but some of them are not. And this has woken people up. Uh, the COVID thing has woken people up to, you don't just randomly stick needles in your arms, but now the, it's swinging to an extreme effect of we're going to have kids who are you're going to grow to adults without a single vaccine in them, and they're going to be taken out by third world diseases. So we have such little trust in the medical establishment now that we can't return to a baseline, and you you can't trust too many doctors. It's it's insane. You have to be your own doctor now. It's just not right. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we had to do. Um, we you have to know what your doctor is telling you better than he does. So what we specifically used this guy for was we needed him to look down my kid's throat, and we needed him to look for a couple specific things. And if he didn't see those things, great. That's all we needed, man. We'll do the rest. That's literally it. That's that's all it was. Most of the consult, and I'll give him this credit. He was really good at the consult in terms of Western medicine. Like he was a highly rated doctor. He sat down and listened to each of the symptoms and concerns that we brought up. And he developed an action plan for each one of those um, in case they weren't answered by whatever we found that day, right? Confirmed or denied. And so, yeah, I mean, I would call that a quality interaction if I were specifically following mainstream Western medicine. But unfortunately, mainstream Western medicine is just not going to give you solutions these days. But anyway, so yeah, he I think he did a good job in the consult. It's just that he's a modern mainstream Western medicine doctor now, and he just doesn't possess critical thinking skills to actually evaluate the evidence in front of him. It's funny when they say evidence-based medicine, because what you said about vaccines if you're actually doing evidence-based medicine, you are considering the risks of these vaccines. You are not just blindly following the CDC guidance. And I wouldn't call myself anti-vaccine. I'm just interested in evaluating the risks and benefits of each vaccine and making a decision about whether they're appropriate for my kid. Uh, so anyway, yeah, you have to be, you have to know what your doctor is telling you better than he does, because you're going to have to interpret what's behind what he's saying in order to come up with an actual plan of action that works. Yeah. And going back to what you, know, you just said too, you got to look at each vaccine for your kid. We live in this all or nothing mindset and this is pushed by social media and legacy media or obsolete media um, by our culture in general. We have this all or nothing mindset. So it's either you're all in for vaccines or you're all in for no vaccines. And like that's, that's not the real world. You know, we have actual diseases and vaccines have saved millions, if not billions of lives. Um, but that doesn't mean every single one of them is necessary. And likewise, because some of them are unnecessary or potentially dangerous, doesn't mean that they're all bad. This all or nothing think thinking is just, it's killing us. You actually, you like you said, critical thinking skills. You have to look at each one on its own merit and say, does my kid need smallpox? Does my kid need measles? Does my kid need polio? And on and on until you, and every one of them has to be evaluated independently for your situation, for your child, for their medical history. It's not all or nothing. It's not one size fits all. And yet our, even our pediatrician uh, will not directly answer our question if we say, hey, is this, do we need to have this vaccine? He won't answer it. He won't say yes or no. Uh, he'll just refer us to some resources and he'll, he'll refer you to you know, a resource that's pro-vaccine. He'll re refer you to a resource that's anti-vaccine and one that's in the middle. And he'll say, make up your own mind and we're happy to do whatever you decide. Uh, and then we also have to be careful, as I mentioned before, about avoiding any kinds of situations where we're seeing a medical provider and they directly ask us what vaccines our kids had. Um, so our general answer to that is he's current on all the vaccines. <laughs> if we say anything yeah. else, it goes down a road where we don't know what happens. We may lose control of our kid. 
Yeah, and well, that's that's also the good mark of a good doctor versus a bad one. The first doctor you mentioned, uh, who says, you know, here's here's some uh, content that's for it, here's some that's against it, make up your own decision. It's it's not the answer you want, right? Like you want to you want a doctor to give you a straight answer, but the fact that he's willing to to give you the resources to make your own decision is really good. Um, at the beginning of COVID, the very beginning of it, well, it's, that's three years ago now, a um, little after that. Uh, when the data was coming in, we still didn't quite know what was what. Uh, we had some some hint that it was, this is before we knew exactly that it was for, it was killing fat old people. We knew it was killing some old people. We knew it was affecting some people overweight. We didn't know the age ranges yet. So we went to our doc to talk about some of this stuff. And um, you know, my wife has PCOS and some autoimmune issues. So actually, I'm sorry, this wasn't it. This wasn't two years ago. This was after the vaccine came out. And we were starting to figure out the side effects of the vaccine because she did have, she does have weight issues that come with PCOS. She also has autoimmune and uh, issues that go with that. So we started, we said, Hey, what's the better path? And he didn't just blindly say, take the vaccine. He sat down, you know, he, he started going through some literature with us about, all right, well, here, who's co- here's, who's being affected by COVID. Your wife's not old enough to be affected with her immune issues. Um, the vaccine is hurting younger people. This, this is what we know so far of who the vaccine's hurting. And we kind of navigated through to see what was the best answer for her. Ultimately, we didn't need the vaccine. She wasn't, um, she wasn't overweight to a point where it actually affected her, nor was she, we're not nearly old enough for COVID to hurt us. Um, you know, and he didn't just blindly say, take the vaccine. He sat down with us to go through pros and cons of both routes. And, uh, we were able to come to a good conclusion. And that's what a good doctor does. They look at your history and compare the, the effects of the medicine to your body. And that's how it should be. So how did you go about finding that particular doctor? How did you go find, about finding other doctors that you could trust with that kind of decision-making? So that doctor was blind luck. We had just moved to the area, um, you know, whatever, six months before, or whatever, whatever the timing was. We hadn't been in the area long. And he was the first doctor we got to. And when we asked the questions, he just happened to be giving them in a good way. Uh, so we didn't have to shop around. So that was luck. Uh, when we moved to the town we're in now, um, with a doctor. So, okay. Another funny story. When we moved to this town, I made an appointment to see a new doc being a small town. There's only maybe six doctors in the whole town and none of them want to see new patients because they're all already overwhelmed. So we managed to convince one of them to see me and my wife. And I saw him, he was overweight and, I, you know, right off the bat, I was not happy about the fact that I have an overweight doctor trying to give me health advice. And uh, shortly after I met him, he had a massive heart attack and died in his, I think, late 30s. I don't even think he was in his 40s, um, which is, I mean, it's tragic, but the doctor that don't take care of himself had a very predictable end. So um, he weeded himself out of the running in that manner. And then after that, um, all his patients got distributed to the remaining doctors. And uh, the one we have now, when I first met her, she walked in wearing a mask, closed the door, pulled her mask off and said, do we need masks or not? And I'm like, no. And I took mine off. So that was a good sign to me that I had a good doctor. Nice. I, uh, I really appreciate that. When, when you get somebody who's, you know, expected to toe the line and they come in and they're like, Hey, can we be real? <laughs> You're like, all right, sweet. This is, this is what I wanted. Um, if, if you ever, for anybody, or any of our listeners who, you know, were not, did not catch on to how the mainstream medical system works through COVID. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe you thought that it was just purely government pulling the strings and that all these doctors, you know, were, were entirely innocent um, or not culpable in some way or, or hadn't dropped the ball in some way. All you have to do is look at heart disease statistics and how we treat heart disease. And that will tell you how clueless the medical system is, right? I mean, our ability to predict and prevent uh, uh, cardiac issues is terrible. It's utterly terrible. Um, so <laughs> definitely worth researching at some point, but, um, uh, it's not just the government telling these doctors what to do. And these doctors are just having their arm twisted. It's also the medical system is, is severely, is severely, um, constrained in terms of incentives. It's constrained in terms of training. It's constrained in terms of, um, uh, the types of things it rewards on top of all the insurance, um, uh, poor incentives and such. Anyway, uh, really beating a dead horse here, but. Uh, suffice it to say, you have to know better than the experts their job, and you have to be very clear in how you're going to engage with them to make sure you're getting quality information from them in a way that you can actually turn into action. 
otherwise you're just going to run in circles and, and run up these huge health bills that you're never going to be able to pay off. Yeah. So I, I want to jump back to you. You said, um, you know, cardiovascular disease and stuff. If you follow Mike Cernovich on Twitter for any length of time, I mean, it's at least once a month he's tweeting about get your heart checked, get your heart checked starting in your thirties, at least, um, again, and coming back to that all or nothing mindset right now, there's very, very strong evidence that the COVID vaccine is causing heart problems in young people. Well, there was also heart problems in young people before the COVID vaccine. So now every time a young athlete drops dead of a heart attack, you have to ask, was it natural? Did he have a heart problem? Was it COVID? Was it the vaccine? Right. Um, but you have ghouls on both sides that are just like, well, he just died of long COVID and that's that. Then you have the, well, it's obvious he died of the vaccine and there's still, I mean, yes, there's an increase. There's, there's an increase. And one of those is causing the increase, but there's still, it happens naturally. Young athletes die of heart problems. It's not common, but it's common enough that you need to get your heart checked regardless of if you are vaccinated or not. You know, don't, don't follow this mainstream advice of starting heart scans when you're fifties or sixties. Get it done early. Get blood work done yearly. Get heart scans done yearly. Know your baseline medical history um, so that you can detect these problems early. Don't just fall into this all or nothing. It's COVID. It's it's the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually had to, it took a fair amount of finagling for me to get a sufficient amount of uh, heart evals done. Uh, you just have to work through the system. It's just like working through any bureaucracy. But what was shocking to me was, how resistant the doctors were to even do some preliminary screening because they're like, oh, you're a healthy young male. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean there's nothing under the surface. And if I'm going to rule out the, say, the top four killers of people my age and my and my profile, one is obviously, one is danger. <laughs> you know, don't be climbing on ladders all the time. Don't be riding four wheelers. Or if you do, you recognize that you're just taking a risk. But in terms of the medical risks you can manage, one is heart disease, two is stroke, three is cancer, right? If you can knock those out, you cut out probably 90% plus of the premature deaths. And when I was going through the heart process, I was just blown away by how difficult it was to talk my doctors into helping me manage these risks. I had to be incredibly precise in how I described problems and how I posed questions to prompt the answers that I wanted and the referrals that I wanted. It's, I mean, it was a whole cat and mouse game. Um, stroke was, was a little bit easier. I, well, I don't know if I've really managed that risk, but what I did was um, I had the, uh, there's an imaging thing you can do where they look at your, um, your arteries in your neck um, and, uh, and then determine whether, you know, you've got substantial blockage or not. I think it's, I think it might be an ultrasound. Um, and then obviously with cancer, actually there, there are pretty advanced blood cancer tests. Have you tried any of these? Uh, not yet, not yet, but I'll definitely be taking some notes so that I can put that in the next time I go in. Yeah. And if you, if you ever want to know what to do to really get high quality, um, high quality healthcare, preventative healthcare, because preventative healthcare is, you know, worth a pound of, of whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I think you can just look at these executive health screenings and they do all these really important tests that basically everybody should be getting. It's just that because of the system and the way that, um, and the way that we pay for healthcare, hardly anybody can afford it. Uh, so if you ever need just kind of like a primer on how to, how to knock out most of the major risks for any sort of middle-aged person, um, the, that's it, those executive healthcare tests. And, uh, but specifically it's, you can really knock out most of it just by checking, you know, managing heart disease, getting a blood work done to do that, uh, getting some, uh, like a, like a calcium score for your heart and then uh, stroke and cancer. Yeah. And it's important to get a baseline for where you are so that you can ch track changes year to year and everything from, you know, the calcium, the, just your baseline heart rate and blood pressure. Right. But also don't, don't list. You got to find out what's actually healthy for your age. When they tell you this is, you have a normal heart rate. Normal is not healthy. The, the normal American is not healthy. So an example of this, I had a surgery uh, two years ago where prior to the surgery, my heart, my resting heart rate was uh, in the fifties. After the surgery, it was in the eighties. And I kept telling them, Hey, there's a problem. Um, and and the, the short version is it, it was just between the anesthesia and being under and the, the kind of the trauma of the surgery, the shock, shock to my system. It took about six months for my heart rate to normalize. But when they initially took my heart rate and blood pressure, they're like, oh, this is all normal. Like, it's not normal. It's 30 beats higher per minute than it was before this started. So I had to really fight to get them to take a, to take a more serious look at my heart. 
and slowly things normalize back to where they should have been. And actually, it's a couple of years later, it's still a little higher than it should be, but compared to where it was pre-surgery. But my point is, when they say normal, that doesn't mean healthy. So really know your numbers going into it, because yet again, you can't trust the medical system to give you accurate information for your health. They're just going to tell you numbers and say, yeah, that's good. It may not be. No, you the exact same. Research this yourself. I had the exact same thing happen. Uh, this was last year. I was having some heart problems and uh, really unusual, um, uh, unusual heart rate and blood pressure and uh, and strange pains and such. And so you're like, oh, geez, man, I might be this exact person that you see, you know, uh, unfortunately turn into a statistic. But um, when I was going through that process of trying to uh, run that down. Every time I'd go get a, a medical evaluation, they'd be like, oh, wow, you have really great blood pressure. No, no, I don't. This is, this is at least 30 points higher than it normally is. Oh, you have, you know, a good heart rate. It's like 70 something. No, that's about 20 higher than it normally is. Um, and they just, they just completely dismissed that I had a substantial and, and, uh, rapid change from my baseline. They just couldn't even, they didn't care. Right. And so you, you really have to manage your own health stats, uh, and understand how to guide the process. You you basically have to guide your doctors through the process now. That's that's basically it. Yeah, if you actually have a doctor who knows what they're talking about and, and can get you on a course to healthy, like if there if you have a doctor who's telling you that a BMI of twenty five is acceptable and normal, then you have to either get a new doctor or start doing your own research and just go to them with uh, with a solution in hand. Go to them with I need this scan. I need this blood work. Because you can't rely on somebody who's going to tell you that unhealthy is healthy. It's sad, but that's the world we live in. Have you ever had like a uh, functional medicine doctor do a blood workup? I have not. Uh, I think this is one of those other things that that Cerno sort of obliquely references. Uh, you'd be surprised how much how much there is to know about that stuff, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. There's just a tremendous amount of complexity in the human body. Um, all the all the things down to you know the difference between total testosterone and free testosterone, or uh, um, uh, like your hemoglobin levels as they, as they, uh, um, as they change throughout the year. It's like, there's so many, there's so much uniqueness to each person's body and the way that your body comes to its homeostasis, uh, it really, really worth doing. Um, and then doing some research on those numbers. Yeah. Like you almost have to turn into an engineer on your own body to start managing all these, taking these statistics, watching if there's any significant deviations, and then turning that into an actual explanation for your doctor so that you can actually use their their expertise in a valuable way versus them just coming back with with nonsense and just like, you know, the standard uh, line, the standard party line. Yeah, yeah just more of the competency crisis we're dealing with. But anyway, um, before I beat this horse too much into the ground, you have anything you want to add on that? No, all good. Okay. So we're just going to do a hard shift here to uh, our next next topic. Um, we're all using social media to build our businesses, right? And if you have an IR, or a, a Wi-Fi money business, social media, hits, it's a global marketplace. And that's why Wi-Fi is so much more scalable than in real life. But a real-life business still needs social media. The problem you run into is that, for the most part, Facebook is the only platform you can use. And, um, gosh, Facebook is such trash. So I, when we had our pet service business uh, four or five years ago, and prior to that, we had Facebook. And Facebook wasn't as trash of a site back then. It was on its way down, but it wasn't as bad. But it was a, a, the main driver, uh, Facebook, and then, of course, Google, um, having good SEO for Google were the two main ways to get people to our business. And that's still the case now in 2023. The problem is... Google is becoming less reliable, and Facebook is just a trash platform. I had to make a new Facebook page for my current IRL business, and it, I only have it connected to the local community, and it's it's a nightmare because you go on these different groups for the local community. Every time somebody DMs you, the, the DM is filled with automated messages from Facebook saying, you know, beware of scams, beware of scams, to the extent that you can't even read the message properly. It's actually hard to read the message and filter through all the the Facebook generated spam. Then going through the actual posts, boomers, God, they're, they're such dinosaurs. Every third post is a minion with a siren on its head. I'm not kidding. Minions all over the damn place. I know that's the meme of Facebook, but it is 100% true. Karen cannot stop posting minions and it makes Facebook unreadable. And then on top of that, 
the remaining posts, if it's not about a business, is just somebody screaming racist about somebody else. That's the entire platform. Minions, racist, and spam. And that's the only option you have as a local business to to push your business on social media. It sucks. So what what are you doing about it? Uh, banging my head against the wall, mostly. Um, I don't... So in the short term, I, I'm trying to get um, just a steady customer base and then get off of Twitter or off of uh, Facebook. I'm trying to get a hold of regular customers, you know, give them my, my business phone number and we could just stay in touch that way, uh, build out an email list or just a text chain. Um, I think text chains are ultimately going to replace uh, um, emails because it's a lot better, but for, for what I'm doing, but that's what I'm trying to do is just cultivate local customers and bang my head against the wall in between until I get those, that customer base built. But yeah, I, I, there's, there's no way to leverage something like Twitter or TikTok into a local community yet. And I don't know that it ever will. So I wonder if this is why we're seeing this resurgence in door-to-door sales. I, I'm always, I, I've got so many door-to-door salesmen now. You know, I hear about it and I see a lot of people, other sales guys on Twitter talking door-to-door. There's not a lot of it in my town, but my town is immune to a lot of that stuff because we're four hours from the nearest uh, airport and we we have less than one person per square mile in my county. Like there's over 10,000 square miles in my county and less than 10,000 people. So, you know, door to door doesn't really work in the, in the sticks, but I can definitely see that it's it's coming back. I can see why. So basically, if I'm, if I'm hiring a local business, it's funny that I do this because sitting on the other side of the, the equation, like I would... I would hope people would act differently, but this is how I go about it, right? Is uh, I use Google Maps and then Google Reviews and maybe one or two other review platforms. And that's how I find the business. It's literally a map search on basic keywords. And then I find who seems to be the most positively reviewed, given that a lot of those reviews are are bought, right? <laughs> uh, and that's it. Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe maybe that's literally the only thing you can do is, is door-to-door sales until we get... Um, another type of platform that's that's more relevant to the locals yeah you know different apps and things keep popping up that try to compete in that space but they they don't get any adoption right what good is an app for local business if nobody's using it what good is a a social media platform that's just for local small business if nobody's on it you know i don't know if angie's list is still a thing that used to be that, that kind of popped up in the era of Craigslist about like you can review certain customers and whatnot. And I, I haven't heard or seen anything about Angie's list in, in years. So my assumption is either it dropped off or nobody's using it, but it gets difficult. And doing the Google search thing, like you mentioned, you have to know how to read reviews because people are more apt, they're more, more likely to uh, leave a negative review than a positive review. So just because you look at a local business and they have more negative and positive reviews, doesn't mean they're bad per se. You also have to look at the the reviews themselves because bad customers leave bad reviews all the time. There are some people that just can't help themselves. Um, this was the big joke about Yelp uh, a couple of years ago. South Park did a fantastic episode about Yelp re- Yelp reviewers and the absolute crazy people that they were. Um, they really just felt it was their their mission in life to ruin small business. Um, and uh, Yelp itself became an extortion racket. So when we when we had our pet service business, um, we would get reviews on Yelp. And if it was a negative review, if it was one star, it would go right to the top. If it was a five-star review, it would get suppressed. And then you'd have to pay somebody at Yelp to review it to get it put back into the rotation. Like it was a straight-up extortion racket for uh, to get the positive reviews shown. And eventually we just... Uh, um, we, we abandoned Yelp altogether. We ignored it. And we started blacklisting customers who uh, would Yelp, who, who used Yelp because the act of using Yelp was showing that you were a bad customer in general. It was, it was the most bizarre thing that bad people were drawn to this platform. So it became a great screening tool. Um, so if we make a new platform for local business, I don't know how you avoid that type of uh, negative feedback loop as well. Yeah, it's funny how we try all these ways of of replacing the um, the way of managing reputations in a small town. <laughs> so when we're in a big town, how do you how do you actually create quality interactions and brand and reputation? I I mean, to your point, even after adjusting for the bias in local reviews, I I just accept that what I'm buying is a total crapshoot unless I get a specific referral from somebody I know is good at judging the quality of that business. That's that's basically it. 
Um, and I know that they may totally screw me and they just see me as a, a customer they can churn through and then move on to the next one because their customer acquisition is so cheap or something. Uh, I, to be honest, I, I really don't see a solution to this problem. I don't know. I, I can't even identify exactly what the problem is, but uh, what, what are you thinking? Uh, as far as, a, as being a consumer, the, the easiest way to filter is how many steps is there between you and somebody who's responsible for bad service. So if I go to a mechanic and it's a car dealership, I'm going to get fucked. Car dealerships, they have the worst mechanics. There's no incentive structure for them to do good work. Um, they're going to upsell the crap out of you for things you don't need. And if they screw up the repair, nobody's responsible for it. It's why I avoid dealerships like the plague. Whereas if I go down the road to Bob's Automotive and Bob comes out of the, the garage with greasy hands and says, what do you want? I know that if if I give him my car and he screws it up, he is the one to blame and he's going to suffer for it. So he's not going to screw up my car. Bob is going to fix it. And that's why I like dealing with people who whose name is on the door, or at least there's, you know, minimal, minimal distance between the person performing the service and the person responsible for it being screwed up. That's my best route as a consumer. And as far as a, being a business, you know, I try to take really good care of the customers I have. So that word of mouth will spread because you piss off one customer, they're going to tell 20 people. You make a customer happy, they're going to tell one or two. You know, it's just an inverted pyramid. So you really got to take care of the good customers and don't be afraid to get rid of bad customers. Bad customers will cost you time and money. If they're going to go and complain to 20 people, fine, let them do it, but get them out of your life. Don't keep bad customers. Don't try to placate the bad customers. Just just get them out of there. That whole thing of the customer's always right, no. Karen is never right. Get Karen away from your money. Yeah, they can definitely hold your company hostage and kind of commandeer the operation and, and build it around just serving whatever their whims happen to be at the moment. I, and I totally agree. Like when I'm looking at a social, a, a local business, I, I'm going to trust the guy with the name on the sign and, and whoever he happened to hire directly under him is going to be accountable to him. Um, and then I, I just put a lot of weight in the initial interactions I've had with that company. So I generally like to ease my way into the relationship. We'll, we'll do a couple, I'll hire them to do one or two small things, see how it goes. And then I'll, and then I'll hire them for a big thing, but otherwise it's just a total crapshoot. So what, what is it that you think these social media platforms are not solving for? What do they need to solve for to be able to replicate the kind of, um, uh, the, the, uh, reputational damage and the positives of being in a small town where people know if you're doing the wrong thing? Well, I don't know that they have any financial incentive to address that. So look at each platform individually. The whole point of the platform is to sell you ad, sell ad space, right? That's what they're doing. They have an ad algorithm for whatever the base product is. They're selling ad space to generate revenue. So TikTok, TikTok is just dopamine receptors. It's also Chinese spyware, which is probably its primary function. And it's frying, frying your brain. It's digital fentanyl. So Whatever it's supposed to be as a profit model, it has no incentive to make a localized TikTok group. You know, there, there's no reason for TikTok to make a uh, zip code based subgroup or sub part of the algorithm. There's just no reason for it. They have nothing to gain from it. Same thing with Twitter. Twitter is supposed to be a verbal dumpster fire where you just, you know, snipe each other back and forth. Or at least that's what it's devolved into if you're using it as in the current algorithm. There's no incentive for there to be a Twitter list that's local. Um, I don't know. I don't know how they would make money doing so. So I don't know what's the incentive for them to do that. Facebook was the only one that worked that way because Facebook was the friend group where you could connect with friends across the world or a local community. It was the only one that was really set up that way. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a legacy platform. It's a dying platform and it's going to go away with probably Gen Xers, but there's no incentive for any other group to, to do that, to replicate the Facebook local platform. So, you know, maybe the space is open for a whole new type of social media uh, or, or app, but again, you got to get people to use it. A couple of things have tried to enter the space and just failed because it has no adoption. And that's the biggest thing is how do you get the next social media to actually work? Cause there's you know, two dozen of them in the, in the, uh, in the background that nobody's using. So I don't, I don't have an answer. So last, last podcast, you mentioned public square. Are they close? Are they doing anything right on this at least? Um, again, it comes down to, it's just, that doesn't have the adoption yet. So, um, I guess that one probably has the best chance, especially because 
it's it's not meant to be a political thing, but it's it is right. It's telling you that if you walk in there, they're not going. This business isn't going to spit in your food for wearing a MAGA hat, right? So it's going to become a more right leaning platform, and it could be a way to cultivate businesses and customers into a right leaning conservative sphere. Although it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to just say. You know, we're not radicals at this business, but the, the end result will be if lefties go in there and libtards go in there and try to complain that you're not using their pronouns, uh, it's actually going to make people go to your business more if they're using the app. So I can see it working that way. But again, it's you got to get people using it. You got you to get the business owners to use it because uh, it has no use in my town because none of the businesses use it. And of course, you know, my town, it's either you go to the diner or you go to the other diner. You, know, you go to the tire shop or you go to the other tire shop. There's no, there's no need for advertising in my town because they, you don't have, you have one option or the other option. So getting that widespread usage is again, the big problem. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe um, all the, all the COVID things made, made public square reach significant adoption, uh, at least that they could get over that critical mass. Um, but maybe they still have some ways to go. I don't know. You know, the last time I heard it really advertised was when the, uh, the guys running the app, uh, the founders were on uh, Tim Pool's podcast, and that was months and months ago. I don't even remember; it might have been six months ago or more. I haven't seen them pop up in any other uh, Twitter feed. I haven't seen them mentioned anywhere. I know it's still out there, but they're just not getting traction. Um, so, if that's something like that's going to be a solution, then definitely more people need to talk about it. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll look into that. And maybe start start trying to push them on Twitter a little bit more. See if we can help them out, and make them a, a local space. Do you think there's any way for Twitter to do that? I mean, we've already got quite a bit of quality interactions going on on Twitter. Obviously, a lot of it's a dumpster fire, but uh, it seems like if I met somebody on Twitter in a group that I was interested in, I would have a lot in common with them and I'd immediately trust them for quite a few things if I've seen their tweet history and I, I get a good sense for how they think and act. Twitter absolutely could. I mean, they already have like a list thing, a list function that you could do. And of course, you've got your timeline. I don't see why they couldn't make a, another another space on there, right? Like right now you go on Twitter and either you go to your timeline or you go to the algorithm where Twitter just pushes nonsense on you. And only a masochist lets Twitter push the algorithm on you. All right. If you're intelligent at all on Twitter, you, you use your timeline and the people you follow only. You don't let, you don't let Twitter take the controls. I don't see why they couldn't add a third option that says, you know, Twitter's from your zip code. Now there's an obvious problem there with VPNs and anonymous accounts, right? Like I use a VPN on my phone. Uh, we're running an anonymous podcast as well as an anonymous Twitter. So um, I would have to make another account for myself locally to try to connect. So there's an obvious way to work through that as well. But point is you can make a zip code based or a city or county based uh, option to see what people in your town are tweeting. It doesn't even have to be a friend group. You just make it like, hey, people within a hundred miles of you are tweeting this and you could see what what your neighbors are saying and maybe find other accounts, business partners, things of that route. I just, again it's where's the demand and what's the incentive for Twitter? You know, how many users would it take to demand such a feature before they'd consider it? Also seems like maybe you'd need to have a certain amount of followers or some sort of investment in the platform. Uh, in order for that system to work, because what's going to stop you from just creating burner accounts, right? If you if you create an account on you know Twitter by zip code, and then you you turn out to suck really bad, you just kill that account and start another one. Uh, do you see a way around that? I really don't. And actually, you just made me think of something else too. People get on Twitter and they buy followers, and you can tell this by any any celebrity or uh, obsolete media outlet who has you know, 2 million followers and, you know, three comments per tweet. Like they buy their followers and have no real ones. What's to stop you from uh, buying a bunch of bots to upsell your business if you're doing it locally? So for every solution we come with to make it work to what we wanted to do, I could think of 12 ways where it would go sideways. So definitely, this is definitely a problem that's going to take somebody smarter than me to solve. Have you ever used those uh, their little grading software things that look at your follower list and and assess you know by quality uh, like which ones are probably good, which ones are probably bad, and what's in between? Have you ever used those? Not yet. We don't have enough followers currently to really do that. Uh, most of the followers I have are people either that I follow or interact with somewhat regularly. Uh, probably interacting right now with half of my followers, which tell you. You know, we're not at that level yet. Once we get to a few thousand, uh, I'll start using things like that. But right now, when we're at a few hundred, it's just not uh, it's not worth my better better use of time just to interact with people. 
And then it's just a matter of time until, you know, some AI figures out how to game that, that grading system. Right. And then it's just, as you said, that's a, it's kind of like an arms race uh, back and forth between the AIs uh, who's, who's creating quality algorithms and then who's learning ways around those algorithms. You know, and do you remember the, uh, the Yahoo and AOL chat rooms from the late nineties and early two thousands? Yeah, definitely. Do you remember as they started to, the, the very first bots started showing up, um, and I don't know the complexity of the bots, but you would just see the same post every three minutes. If you were an anti-gun room or gun chat, there'd be somebody in there making the same three talking points about pro-gun or anti-gun. If you were in an abortion chat, if you're in a political chat, if you were in, I mean, name your chat. There was just like every five minutes, the same post would come up. And I'm convinced now to this day that if you went and dug up those old chat rooms and you know, made your way on them in the dark corners of the internet. It's just bots arguing with each other all the way down. Like, you know, I wonder if it's actually the sci-fi movies could be made from a uh, Yahoo chat room, making you know, bots gaining sentience. Like it'd be the stupidest sci-fi movie ever, but it'd be hilarious. But my point is, is that those things are, they're, they're still going right. There's just bots going back and forth. There's no human users. And I wonder if the current AI, the chat GPT and all these things are going to devolve into that, where people just start to detach from so many of these portions of the internet and go back to, or at least some of us go back to face-to-face interactions because it's the only thing that you know for sure is real. You know, I'm going to go back to buying things local instead of on uh, online simply because I know I'm talking to a human being and not a bot. Yeah, exactly. Totally agree. Yeah. That's why I think I, I keep recommending to people to in real life live in small towns uh, for all the good things about small towns and then use the internet for all the things that you like about big cities. Uh, and that's, that's a good way to harvest the, the upside of both. But I, you had this other comment about Twitter and uh, maybe Twitter could solve that, that Twitter by zip code problem. I think they're going to have to solve something like that at some point, because I just can't picture Twitter going, you know, five X what it is right now, 10 X what it is right now. And it's still being a quality platform. I just don't know how you would cut through that much noise. It's already a ton to cut through all the BS on Twitter. And, you know, right now it's still relatively easy to find the exact groups you want to be in and the high quality people and to directly engage with them. But it doesn't take much more for that process to get totally corrupted. So I don't know. Do you think, how do you think they can do that? Well, they've already set the groundwork with the timeline. That is the, the only reason that Twitter is useful to me is because I can set my own timeline and I can read the people I follow and interact with my followers and I could ignore everybody else. So I follow about a hundred people on Twitter and that's all I see. And, and with their retweets and whatnot, that's actually how I find new accounts by other people retweeting people that I don't follow. But for you to go on Twitter and just let Twitter show, show you the world that, why do you think so many people on Twitter, they lose their mind? Why do they think their brains melt? Like, at some point there, we're going to have to teach a class on how to use Twitter without breaking your brain. Because if you know how to use it, it's a superpower and it's an information tool. But if you don't know how to use it, it is just, it's, it's a dumpster fire. And that's why everybody calls it a dumpster fire because you have uh, you know, the reply guys come out of the woodworks and they live just to reply to other people. Like what the hell kind of a life is that? What is that doing to your, to your brain? So there's, there's a skill set to be made in Twitter. And I guess we can kind of roll into some of that now because like I said, I, I keep things in my timeline. I vet somebody by their tweets and say, hey, this guy's got good stuff to say. Um, he's got good advice, whether it's business by advice, fitness advice, whatever whatever subject it is, or guy or girl. And I, I follow them and I continue to interact with them because they have they contribute positively to my life. If Twitter is not contributing positively, I'm not using it. So I, I narrow down the field and filter out all the bullshit. That's the very first step. But even at that, the next big th- big hurdle on Twitter, once you develop your own timeline and following list, is how to take good information from somebody who's an absolute prick. Because some of the smartest people on Twitter are just, just absolute dickheads and pricks, and they're infuriating half the time. But the other half, they are tweeting absolute gold, and you have to be able to separate that. You, you have to. Otherwise, you're missing out on good stuff, and you're going to make yourself insane wanting to argue with somebody who's being a Jew. So that's the... But that is a huge, huge skill to develop. You know, you don't have to like somebody all the time to be able to take positive information from them. Yeah. I mean, the thing I love in particular is, as you said, you can, you can take good information from someone who's an absolute prick, someone you absolutely cannot stand. And when you've had enough of them, you just hit the X, right? Or at least if you're using a browser, you hit the X. 
Um, and so you can just stop that conversation. Whereas in real life, you, it, it might come to, you know, might come to fisticuffs if you, if you had to deal with that person in real life, <laughs> but at least you can take them in measurable doses and then leave when you're done. Um, that I had another, uh, point about that. Um, so if you're, uh, what is it that, oh, the thing that really drives me nuts about my timeline is I'll have a few really good quality accounts that I really like. They put out good quality, but then for some reason they put out a bunch of just filler tweets about, you know, the pizza they had last night or something and a picture of it. And I'm like, dude, you just like, you're polluting my timeline. Is there a way to filter that out? The best thing I've figured out is lists. Like I'll give you an example for myself. I, I used to follow, I do follow Jack Posobiec on and off, but Jack Posobiec, um, he's a political commenter. He, he runs a, uh, a news website. Um, and he tweets about my pillow nonstop. It's funny for a while and then it gets old. And then anybody who's in the political and news space, you know, if news media makes you angry all the time, that's the, that's the, uh, how the news media works. So what I've done is I've relegated, uh, Jack Posobiec to a list and I put him in a list so that when I want to know about a certain topic, I can go find his tweets on it because I know he's going to be telling the truth. Like to a 99% degree, he's going to be accurate on a topic, but I don't need to see him every day. I don't need the current events he's bringing in every day. I don't need tweets about my pillows every day. So when I, in the, when I'm in the mood or I'm curious about a topic, I'll go to him and a few others in his sphere so that I can uh, deal with them. But otherwise, I don't let them in my timeline. And that's what I do is I periodically, as people start to get like that, if I still want to follow them, I'll just boot them to a list and then bring them back as it becomes relevant. You know, there's people who are relevant every day and then there's people who are relevant sometimes. So that's that's the closest I've come up with. Um, but it'd be really nice if I could make multiple timelines and cultivate my lists that way. Um, We'll see if it gets there, but that's, that's the easiest thing I've got them on. So my problem is I don't know what I'm missing on the timeline. Um, cause if I've got an account that I really like following and they, they post a bunch of trash and filler and noise tweets for engagement, uh, and then I unfollow them or I put them on a list. I don't know what I'm missing until I go back to that list and scroll through everything. Right. Uh, so there's gotta be some way of, of filtering out the noise, but still capturing everything you want to be reminded of regularly. Is do you see any way of that? I don't, but I'm not a tech guy, so I'm the wrong one to ask that question to. I think the the easiest thing is just to keep bombarding Twitter with that until the message reach, reaches Elon Musk and he can have one of his engineers uh, work on it. But because I know that part of the problem with a lot a lot of the problems we have with Twitter is that that's how it works. So you have to put out a lot of shit. You have to retweet your own tweets. You have to push your product at the end of a tweet. You have to make threads constantly. Otherwise, your your account doesn't grow. It stagnates. And even if, you, even if you have 200K followers, you'll still stagnate if you're not pushing all the fluff with the content. Because nobody nobody can put out 20 good tweets a day. Nobody can, uh, has that. Even the biggest accounts don't put out that much gold. They'll claim they do, but they really don't. They put out 19 tweets of fluff and one tweet that's gold every day. But they need all 20 to drive the account, keep it active, get more followers, and push their product. So... So long as the algorithm promotes that behavior, there's no there's no way to put an end to it. It's so weird that that's how it's designed, because if, if they incentivize people having to push a bunch of noise to work the algorithm in order to get engagement, then that just makes me not want to follow them. I, it's so bizarre to but me. You're not a normal person. That's the thing is it's dopamine, right? You sit there on Twitter and you scroll from tweet to tweet and between every three or four tweets is an advertisement. There's money. Then you go to the next tweet and then you go to the next, then there's an advertisement, then there's the next tweet. So that's, you know, one thing they could do like right out the gate, what we want is a, I, I want to give them not just $8 a month to be a verified platform, but how about I give you $10 a month or whatever? And I see no advertisements at all. None. Because I don't want to see advertisements. I don't. The Twitter is literally the only place in the world I see advertisements. I don't have advertisements on my TV. I don't have advertisements on my YouTube. I use Brave browser. I don't have advertisements on my computer. No advertisements. So if I could pay you to get rid of the ads, great. Maybe I could take it a step further and pay you to give me a better filtering mechanism that I could filter out noise. I could filter out retweets. I could filter out uh, plugged advertisements and stuff like that from an account. So I can only see the stuff on an account I want to see. Um, of course that flies in the face of the, the accounts that are making money off of these techniques, but that's just a bad version of a good idea. You know, this, this is the steps I'm willing to go to. What can Twitter offer me in, in return? Uh, this is, 
coming full circle back to a point I think we made in maybe a podcast two or three or something, uh, which is in, in the digital age, you should be able to own your own data and you should be able to control the algorithms that are affecting your life, right? You should be able to pay Twitter some fee for, for hosting this data and then allowing you to use the algorithm how you see fit. You should be able to tweak it. You should be able to optimize certain things. We shouldn't all be stuck, uh, held hostage to the same uh, the same algorithm or the same goals that Twitter has. I should be able to use it for my benefit and pay them for that optionality. Exactly. Keywords, pay them. They want my money. They want my time. Give me what I want and I will give you my money. Set a price. Let me control the algorithm. Let me control the ads. Let me control this stuff. And I will give you money and time. I'll use your platform even more. I'll do more for it if you give me what exactly what I'm looking for. And it's not like we don't have the tech now. The AI is good enough to help uh, filter these things. You could make a personalized uh, Twitter real estate. You absolutely could. It's just, where's the incentive structure? And maybe this is the stuff that Elon needs to make the, the platform truly um, profitable because you could really set up your own Twitter community that way. Like um, we have Twitter spaces. Why not? And lists and, and timeline. Why not Twitter community? Why not a f- actual like, you know, just like locals has its own community type thing. Why not the same thing in Twitter where um, you can control like, Hey, to be in this community, we don't care if you post once a day or 20 times a day, but don't, don't post bullshit, you know, stop plugging your product or plug your product, a minimum, uh, a maximum of once a day and make sure that your product isn't garbage. Something, something along those lines, right? Like set, set the real estate so you can control it or like a locals platform within Twitter where, you got, you know, 20 of us could come together and host our own space and people could follow uh, and comment, but not post directly in. I don't like, again, I'm throwing shit at the wall here. I'm not, I haven't really thought this through, but these are just, just some ideas that to throw at the wall and see what sticks, but there's definitely more that can be done with the space. I mean, this, this comes back to one of the themes that we have, which is uh, you're going to need to be able to pay to maintain your own sanity and your own individuality and control your own attention and not be a digital attention slave. Uh, If you're using any free platforms, you need to recognize you're paying a price for it, whether you like it or not. And if there's no way for you to start paying real money for it, uh, you're probably going to pay for it in terms of your attention and your ability to, to even just control the thoughts in your head. Sooner or later, the system is going to turn all of these people into complete NPCs to where they can't even extract themselves from it. What do you mean sooner or later? How about we're already there? And those of us that are left are struggling not to get pulled in. I mean, it's an, it's an everyday fight. I, it's, I, I, I can't tell you how much time I spend cussing every day being mad about, Hey, I don't want to actually have to pay attention to that. Stop putting that in front of my face. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, it's crazy. I mean, right now we're dealing like out of nowhere, we just had this sudden war on gas stoves, right? Three days ago, nobody was talking about gas stoves. Now, all of a sudden, it's an argument about whether or not we got to ban them because of climate racism or whatever the made up issue of the day is. This is possible because of social media and how quickly people are programmed by it. And if you're finding yourself passionately for or against and fighting for some topic that, that 30 minutes ago you had never heard of, you need to do a digital detox. You need to step away. Nobody's meant to be this angry all the time. And this this is part of what I mean when I say we have to have like a course on how to deal with Twitter because and Twitter and social media in general, but like our brains are not wired to deal with this shit. And we're not supposed to be angry, anxious, and scared all the time, but that's how the algorithm works. That's how the dopamine receptors work. And that is the end result of this stuff. And that's why so many people are being drawn into NPC land so quickly because you can just download a narrative into somebody's head in a matter of minutes. Like these, these non-issues take, take hold and take off so fast. Um, it's why it's so important for you to really cultivate your, your Twitter space or Instagram or whatever platforms you're using. Um, don't let them push these narratives into your head. You have to learn how to separate yourself from it. it it's funny. Yeah, we don't even have Neuralink chips yet. You don't even have a, a hardware or wireless connection to your brain uh, that they can just upload software. But yet they've already accomplished it. It's literally a new software upload just dropped and everybody's got to upload it in their brain. Um, but we also, I mean, we talked before in this podcast about how SAS is a neo-feudalist system, right? You you live on somebody else's land, you build on somebody else's land and they control you and they they can kick you off at any time and they, they own whatever you build on it. Um, but what's interesting is the digital world is already terraforming your own brain even before it has a hardware or wireless connection to it. 
you will need to pay just to be in your own brain. And if you can't afford it, you get assimilated. Yeah. God, I'm just thinking now. All right. So they're starting to put out cars now with a subscription model, right? Everything's going to subscription model. So now you buy a car, it's got heated seats and self-driving cruise control and whatever other features on there. But instead of paying the dealership, you know, an extra thousand dollars for that to be put in your car, it, your car comes with it and you need to pay a subscription model to the car to unlock those features. That's going to be our brain soon where you get this chip in your head, but you have to pay you know, the, the neural link, you're going to pay to have it unlock features, to have things work properly. And good God, that's frightening. That is so frightening. And yet people are going to line up for it. They are. I mean, they, they, they drove into random parking lots to have a, a experimental vaccine pumped into their veins. Do you think they're not going to line up to have a chip put in their head? Ugh, it's just, ugh, I'm just shuddering right now as I'm thinking about it. But all the more reason, all the more reason you have to become self-sovereign. You have to take control of your own source of income, you have to be able to chart your own path because the first people that are going to be totally converted in the system are anybody dependent on the government, anybody dependent on big corporations. The ship is sailing and you have to be on it because at some point you won't be able to get to it. Uh, you have to become self-sovereign or you will be terraformed. You will be assimilated. Yeah. it's For as much optimism I have about the future, the, the space between today and that optimism is very frightening because we will find a way through it on the other side. We will find a way to dominate social media, to dominate things like Neuralink and uh, get out of these addictive digital fentanyl devices. But the path between here and there, God, it is so frightening. And it's like, you have to be on it every day. You have, you can't relax right now because as soon as you relax, you get complacent, you're addicted to these platforms and then you're part of the problem. Um, and it's just, it's crazy to me how many people roll over and to how they can still trust the government, how they can still trust corporations, how they can still trust big pharma. You know, it used to be the raving lunatic on the corner screaming, the end is nigh. You're like, yeah, that guy's nuts. And now you're looking at him going, man, he's the sane one in the room. It's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. I think people just really have to understand what's at stake. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have an inkling or you, you probably know what's at stake. Um, you need to be going a hundred percent right now in taking control of your life and your independence. Cause this, this really is war. It's war for your own freedom. Yeah. Boy, that took a depressing turn really fast. Not really where, not where we wanted to go with that, but it's <laughs> God, it's true. You, you have to, you can't get complacent right now. Um, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. All right. Like look back through human history. We've overcome everything, anything that's been thrown at us, whether it's been from nature or from ourselves, we have defeated it and we will defeat this too. It's not, it's not over. It's not time to just roll up your sleeve, take the vax, take the chip, and, and surrender. Far from it. You just have to be willing to endure another decade or so of pain and fighting and understanding that you might be the only real person in a room full of NPCs. You have to be willing to do that and not give <laughs> into the temptation to just be an NPC yourself. Yeah. It, hard to bet against humanity, right? Mankind has always overcome, and it will. Um, but just have to recognize what's at stake and and what's really happening and, and take charge of the situation. Yeah. So I think in future podcasts, what we need to do is come back to the Twitter topic. And I say Twitter because I'm more familiar with Twitter than I am with things like Instagram and TikTok. But the social media topic in general, we really need to dive in on how to navigate that with specific examples and details without losing your mind how to maintain respect for people, how to read nuance in a tweet, how to get out of the all or nothing mentality of tweeting. Um, just a little thing. I'll give you a couple examples now, but we're not going to, we don't have time to dive into it entirely, but um, we'll, 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 like I said, we'll talk, we'll go, we'll cover this in future topics, but um, just because you retweet somebody is not an endorsement of all their tweets, but you'll see right away. You'll, you'll retweet somebody once and then you get people coming out of the word works like, Oh, your boy said this. What about that? And you're like, how does my retweeting him make me make him my boy? How am I now responsible for the things he says? Like that's a real dysfunction of your brain to not understand that retweeting a single tweet is not an endorsement of the person, nor should you have to preface things with, you know, I don't always agree with him, but this time he's right. How is agreeing with somebody once an endorsement of their life's tweets and their all the everything they've ever said? Like that doesn't pan out in the real world. But on Twitter, that is absolutely the rule of the game. So Things like that. We really got to dive into how to navigate Twitter. That, that's probably going to be a whole podcast on its own because there's so much to it and there's so much that people are doing that's insane that um, 
it really is a lesson in itself of how to navigate Twitter. But uh, we'll leave that for the future. Um, you got anything you'd like to add, Remy? Uh, I just think learning how to maximize your, your functionality in Twitter is probably a top three most important skill for surviving and thriving in today's environment. And I'm, I'll, I'm self-admittedly not that great at it, but good enough to benefit a lot from it. And, uh, and I recommend anybody else getting really good at it. Yeah, I, I agree on that. Um, maybe we'll make that a future. Maybe that'll even be next week. Uh, not sure yet. We got to see what, what pans out next week and what res relatives wind up visiting and, and derailing, uh, my weekend, but we'll do what we can as always guys. Um, yeah, we want to hear from you. Go ahead and reach out to us on Twitter at Wi-Fi Pioneers. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Tell, you, tell us if you disagree with something, if there's a topic you want us to go into more depth on, if there's just anything. We want to hear from you so we uh, can give you the best content that we can. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to sign off. Have a good one. Remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourself. <laughs>